Welcome to Introduction to Feminist and Social Justice Studies. This is the fifth audio episode of the semester-long course for the Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist and Social Justice Studies program at McGill University, taking place in the fall of 2021. My name is Dr. Alex Ketchum. I'm your professor for this course. I'm joined by three teaching assistants who are graduate students at McGill University. Our teaching team will lead you through the materials of this course. In the last lecture, we talked about American and Canadian feminist movements in the 19th and early 20th centuries. One of the major themes in that lecture was around the tensions within the category of woman. As we discussed, one of the problems with the feminist wave theory is that so much of it is built around white women's histories and experiences with feminist activism. Critiques of treating middle and upper class white women's experiences as universal occurred in the 19th and early 20th century. We'll continue to see these critiques in the lecture today and throughout this course. Today's episode will explain, one, the history of feminist activism from the 1920s to the 2020s in the U.S. and Canada, two, areas of focus within feminist activism and how that shifts between generations, three, how feminist activism is linked with other social movements, and four, the concept of backlash, and how progress is not a straight line. This is one of the longest lectures of the semester. Most won't be this long. Let's get started. Today's song is Brick Hut by Mary Watkins from 1978. It is the third track on Mary Watkins' 1978 album, Something Moving. Watkins wrote the song about the feminist restaurant, the Brick Hut Cafe of Berkeley, California, which was in business from 1975 to 1997. The cover of the album shows Watkins sitting at the counter at the first location of the Brick Hut Cafe, which lasted from 1975 to 1983, until the owners had to relocate. As you can see in the picture, which I include in the transcripts, the original menu was small. It was painted by Peggy Mitchell of the all-women rock band BBK Roche on a board attached to the hood above the stove. The lesbian feminist record company, Olivia Records, produced both BBK Roche's and Watkins' albums. Olivia Records, the first women's music record label, was created in 1973 by a collective including artist Mae Christian. Starting with a single that was successfully sold by mail order, Olivia was able to release May Christian's I Know You Know and Chris Williams's The Changer and the Changed. The Changer and the Changed was apparently one of the all-time best-selling albums on any independent label at that time and was also the first LP to be entirely produced by women. Olivia Records produced what is known as women's music. Women here was code for lesbian. Many of the women... Many of the musicians wrote songs about being in love with other women. The music was popular at women's music festivals. Women's music festivals began appearing in the early 1970s in the United States 
starting with day festivals at the Sacramento State and San Diego State University campuses, the Midwest Women's Festival held in Missouri, the Boston Women's Music Festival, and the National Women's Music Festival at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. These first regional women-only events exposed audiences to feminist and openly lesbian artists, most of whom operate independently of the mainstream recording industry. Festival gatherings offered an alternative to urban bars, coffee houses, and protest marches, which were some of the few opportunities for lesbians to meet one another in the early 1970s. Other spaces were lesbian feminist restaurants, bookstores, galleries, consciousness-raising groups, and cafes. You may have heard about the Michigan Women's Music Festival, women spelled with a Y, which took place every August from 1976 to 2015 in Oceana County, Michigan, near Hart Township, in a small wooded area known as The Land. The event was completely built, staffed, and run, and attended by women. This festival came under scrutiny because of the way that the festival defined women. The organizers excluded trans women. Pushback against the TERF, known as TERFs, or trans-exclusionary radical feminists, and changing ideas around feminism are some of the reasons the festival ended. All of this brings us to some important themes in today's lecture that we will also return to again in the course. We will be looking at a variety of feminist movements today and think about who is included and who is excluded. I want us to pay particular attention to the ways that subgroups within more privileged Subgroups with more privileged and marginalized communities oftentimes define the agenda within movements. We can see this in feminist movements, but also in other social movements. We'll talk about the debates, disagreements, and complexities. I also chose The Brick Hut by Mary Watkins for today's song, since the song is personally significant to me. As I mentioned in the first lecture, my dissertation was on the topic of feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses in the United States and Canada, particularly from 1972 to 1989. So you might be asking yourself, what is the definition of a feminist restaurant? For the purposes of my research, feminist restaurants were self-identified. I wasn't interested in saying what was or wasn't feminist, but I was interested in why restaurants owners and founders would identify their space as feminist. These restaurants acted as spaces that challenged the status quo around cooking and consumption, fulfilled the desire, and fulfilled the desire for geographies apart from men. The founders felt that they needed spaces separate from male-dominated establishments in order to escape oppressive formal restraints that regulated female socializing. Some were women only, some were not. Although many were not close to men, they focused on women. Here again, we can see this theme and tension of what the word woman or women means. Did it mean all women? Did it mean lesbian women? Was it trans-inclusive? Feminist restaurants served what they deemed to be feminist food, food that was usually vegetarian and represented their feminist and environmentalist values. In order to challenge the hierarchies of many restaurants, they would often have windows open so you could see the people working in the kitchen. This was prior to the popularization of the open kitchen concept. Customers would often grab their own food and dishes. Tipping was usually banned. Within the restaurant organizations themselves, they were often run by collectives with members rotating positions. The restaurants often would have sliding scale menu items to make the cost more accessible. Some functioned as clubs with membership fees. A constant challenge was trying to pay the workers living wages. 
pay farmers and food producers living wages, and have affordable prices for a clientele of primarily women, often lesbians, who are paid significantly lower wages. Trying to maintain this balance usually failed and led to burnout and overwork and tension in collectives. There was also a time period prior to the passage of the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, the ECOA, in 1974 in the United States, which meant that loans couldn't be denied on the basis of sex or race. While Canada does not have equal credit opportunity legislation per se, human rights legislation passed in 1977 offered similar protection as the ECOA. However, in practice, many women still could not get a line of credit in their own name and needed a husband or father to have his name on the loan. This was made further difficult as many of the women who started these restaurants were white lesbians, a significant number of whom were Jewish. Feminist restaurants sometimes could get loans from the feminist credit unions that began to pop up around this time, but the founders often relied on donations, or crowdfunding as we might call it today. Since women of color and lesbian women of color faced further barriers to getting loans, many created coffee houses which were like pop-up events in which there was food, drinks, music, dancing, and entertainment. By not requiring a permanent space, hosting feminist coffee houses was more accessible to working-class lesbians and many women of color. My dissertation was entitled Serving Up Revolution, Feminist Restaurants, Cafes, and Coffee Houses in the United States and Canada from 1972 to 1989. It's the first history of more than of the more than 250 feminist and lesbian restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses that existed in the United States during the 1970s and 80s, and emphasizes the importance of physical space for socializing, activism, economics, and community building. Feminist restaurants produce fertile environments for political organizing and activism. The history of feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses in the United States and Canada is a history of business practices, political activism, and food politics. This dissertation placed these eateries within the greater context of 20th century American feminist political economy. Bolstered by the creation of mapping interfaces, this project recentered feminist entrepreneurialism and challenged narratives of post-war feminism. At my dissertation defense, I opened my presentation by playing a segment of Watkins' song. This is why this song is so significant to me. I wanted to bring in what shade and ink could not. As feminist restaurants and cafes engage with their communities by sponsoring guest speakers, concerts, poetry meetings, and poetry readings, and art shows, engaging their community through audio, written text, images, and textures, I hope to provide the same multi-sensory experience. You may ask yourself why I started my presentation about feminist restaurants and cafes with a discussion about lesbian feminist musicians and record companies. Feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses served as cultural and social centers for feminist and lesbian communities. These businesses served as concert venues for musicians like Watkins and lesbian folk singer Alex Dobkin and locations where women could work as out lesbians. These restaurants provide economic opportunities both for the people working there and affiliated businesses and artistic and cultural ventures. The owners of these businesses wrote cookbooks and produced other cultural ephemera. Importantly, they flipped the narrative of the kitchen as an inherent site of women's oppression and showed the empowering potential within cooking. To talk about restaurants and food without having any of the actual food there would have felt inappropriate, so while I spoke, I passed around cupcake versions of sourdough chocolate devastation cake. I included a photocopy of the recipe with the cake. 
The recipe comes from the cookbook, The Third Perennial Palette, which was the third in a series of now six cookbooks written by the Bloodroot Collective, a Bridgeport, Connecticut, Bloodroot Feminist Vegetarian Restaurant Bookstore, founded in 1977, which is still in business. For those with dietary restrictions, there was little to worry about. It was vegan, and as the audience could see the ingredients on the recipe going around, there are no nuts. At the bottom of the recipe, there are quotes that the authors included in the cookbook, citing other feminist authors that inspired them. This recipe, too, speaks to the deep interconnection between feminist restaurants and literary culture, both through the actual production of the cookbook and the promotion of other authors, scholars, and activists. My cooking the recipe also served as a reminder of the role of the historian. Just as I had to interpret the recipe, despite not having access to all the information, such as what brands and sources of ingredients the writer intended, when I began researching feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses, there was no list or database already in existence. I had to parse through what information I had available, which included lesbian and women's travel guides, such as Gaia's guides, or Gaia's guides, depending on how you pronounce it. And it's supposed to kind of have this unclear pronunciation so it can pass. Um, which I made available for viewing. I had to comb through periodicals and look through advertisements and articles. I also had to re- rely on interviews with former owners and staff members at these businesses and was referred forward to other interviewees through the help of restaurant owners, archivists, and lesbian feminist Facebook forums and pages. So even though I completed that iteration the project three years ago, I still publish articles and books on the topic amongst my newer work on public scholarship and historicizing feminist critiques of the internet and artificial intelligence. So why do I bring all of this up? Well, seeing as I spent almost a decade of my life working on that research, taking a few minutes to talk about it seems a bit fair, especially as it relates to the themes of today's lecture. Also, as another side note, I started that research during my undergrad. I was co-organizing the university's organic farm, managing the living community focused on food politics farmhouse, and studying feminist studies and history. A friend mentioned that there was a feminist restaurant 40 minutes away in Bridgeport, Connecticut, Bloodroot. I went with a few friends, ate some food, talked to the founders, and was fascinated. That experience changed my life. You never know where your work in one of your classes and a great slice of cake will take you. Maybe you'll write something in this class or read something that'll change your life in a positive way. I hope so. But the main reason I bring all of this up is because with the case study of feminist restaurants, we can see some threads that appear throughout this lecture and beyond. We can see that there are different ways to tell the histories of social movements. Depending on which people you focus on, you will see different histories. This is one of the big arguments of Benia Roth's work, whose introduction to her book, Separate Roads to Feminism, Black Chicana, and White Feminist Movements in America's Second Wave that we read for today. We can also see that activism takes many forms, depending on how you define activism. Sure, activism can be a march, or a protest, or a boycott, but activism can also be art. It can be creating community spaces. It can be about making new kinds of businesses, such as the new kinds of restaurants, bookstores, credit unions, and more. In this course, I want us to think about an expanded version of activism. For reasons such as people having mobility, various mobility disabilities, chronic illness, being unable to get childcare, having to work multiple jobs, not being able to risk arrest because they are undocumented, and many, and many more reasons, many people cannot go to marches, but they can still do activism. 
Social movements also have tensions. Activists have disagreements. Different people have more or less power within activist groups, even a group of marginalized people. Okay, so now let us back up. We ended the last lecture in the 1920s. In the typical wave history of feminist activism, things are a bit quiet after women get the right to vote until the 1960s. However, during that 40-year period, a lot happens. There's this idea of the new woman who pushes some of the boundaries around sexuality and independence in the 1920s, but with earlier roots. There are the labor movements and union organizing of the 1930s alongside the Great Depression. In the U.S., New Deal policies impacted class politics. White Americans benefited more from these policies. In Canada, the Great Depression greatly impacted daily life. During this period, you also have activists working on women's welfare rights. Margaret Sanger, Planned Parenthood, amongst others, worked on birth control access, opening up opportunities for women to have more control over their fertility. should be noted that, in the early 20th century, birth control activism has a fraught history intertwined with eugenics movements. Some of these activists were interested in only certain women having children and thus used this eugenic justification to promote birth control practices. This is a topic we will delve into more during the health lecture. Racial justice and civil rights organizations continue to advocate on behalf of Black Americans and Black Canadians and other people of color. A lot of activism is going on during this period. Gender roles are shifting and being negotiated and renegotiated. In the 1940s, with the outbreak of World War II, we can see new shifts regarding gender. While some women had worked outside the home their whole lives, such as working-class women in factories, World War II changed workplaces across the United States and Canada. With many American and Canadian men sent to war, women took over more of the factory jobs and jobs throughout society at higher numbers. Also, women went to war as well. So maybe you've heard of Rosie the Riveter in the United States or Ronnie the Bren Gun Girl of Canada. These were icons of women going to work at factories to contribute to the war effort and life on the home front. You have similar icons in Australia and New Zealand. So after the war was over, when soldiers and their support teams returned home, many women were pushed out of the jobs that they had during the war. In the post-war era in the 1950s, through government programs, through advertising and consumer culture, and a variety of social and cultural shifts, we see the rise of consumer culture and the push for the 1950s housewife ideal in which a woman does not work outside of the home, but focus on but focuses on housewifery and childcare. There is a baby boom, that's the generation name, the boomers. Think, leave it to Beaver, the Donna Reed show, the rise of supermarkets and white flight to the suburbs. Now the 1950s housewife ideal was really a white middle-class ideal to which other women were held, even if that didn't reflect their actual lives. It is from the 1950s post-war era that we come to the 1960s and the rise of what is traditionally described as the second wave of feminism. Social movements have long historical roots. Even if we're to accept the concept of a second wave, the women's movements, yes, plural movements, build upon and challenge what comes before. This is why it is difficult to locate the exact start of any social movement. There are debates among historians about the start of the second wave, and it has to do with whose histories you look at. Some historians argue that the publication of Betty Friedan's Feminist Mystique in 1963 was the start of the second wave feminist movement. Maybe you have heard of this book. In it, Friedan describes what she calls the problem that has no name. 
which is a kind of malaise of white, middle-class, college-educated housewives that are not in the workforce. This book was highly influential and spoke to a particular demographic of white suburban housewives who felt post-war pressures to conform to a kind of Stepford wife ideal. It didn't describe the experiences of many American or Canadian women who worked outside of the home in addition to household work. What's interesting about this book is that it didn't even really describe wholly Free Dan's own experiences as she was a writer. She wrote the book and she'd been a journalist and previously involved in labor movements. Nonetheless, this book impacted quite a few people. However, some historians like Sarah Evans in her book Personal Politics would argue that many women's and particularly younger women's consciousness was raised to sexism through their experiences working in the civil rights movement. Oftentimes, women activists would be pushed into secretarial positions within movement organizing, or the contributions of women organizers would be sidelined, left out media accounts, or otherwise minimalized. Although sexual harassment as a term had yet to be coined, the sexual harassment some activists faced while doing organizing work made them interested in feminism and working against sexism and racism. Essentially, you can find different starting points depending on which groups you look at. This brings us to Benita Ross, Separate Roads to Feminism, Black Chicana, and White Feminist Movements in America's Second Wave. This book is about the development of white women's liberation, Black feminism, and Chicana feminism in the 1960s and 1970s, the period known as the Second Wave of U.S. Feminist Protest. Benita Roth explores the ways the feminist movements emerged from the Civil Rights Black Liberation Movement, the Chicano Movement, and the white left, and the processes that supported political organizing decisions made by feminists. She traces the effects that inequality had on the possibilities for feminist unity and explores how ideas common to the left influence feminist organizing. Why did distinct feminist organizations develop among radical women of color and Euro-American women in the late 60s and 1970s? The question has engaged both scholars and activists since the organization's emergence. Sociologist Benia Roth concludes that these organizations constituted separate feminist movements and concurs with Black and Chicana feminist theorists that the intersectional nature of oppression encouraged but did not determine their formation along the fault lines of race and class in American society. But she doesn't rest there. Applying the insights of social movement theory, she argues that intermovement political field, the myriad of radicalisms of the period, and the ideas that circulated among them, including the widely observed ethical imperative to look to your own oppression, formulated by proponents of identity politics, further reinforced all feminist inclination to organize their own. That's a quote from page 22. So conjoining intersectionality and social movement theory enables Roth to reconceptualize what a good answer to the familiar question should look like. She looks at race and class within feminist movements. While some women of color had gained expanded access to higher education, and employment opportunities in the post-World War II period, their status as new members of the middle class provided far more tenuous and for Latinas in their isolation in white-dominated universities and workplaces more acute than was the case for most Euro-American women. If post-war prosperity provided all feminists with the resources for protests, those resources flowed disproportionately to white women, creating a significant structural barrier to sisterhood. And Roth uses the concept of sisterhood here as it was part of the vernacular at the time. 
Other key points she raises are that she wants to change the narrative that women of color weren't interested in joining feminist movements, but rather that women of color were involved, but often not welcome in the main liberal feminist movements or organizations or feared being tokens in organizations like now the National Organization of Women started by Betty Friedan, so they founded their own groups. Her book focuses on Chicana, Mexican-American, Black feminists, and white feminists. She argues that the dynamics were not solely about interpersonal interactions, but also the overall structure of the social movement sector, but inner movement political field of the era, and the overall structure of inequality in the United States. Furthermore, she argues that second-wave feminism has to be understood as a group of feminisms, movements made by activist women that were gradually organizationally distinct from one another, and from the beginning, largely organized along racial-ethnic lines. In other words, there are more than two twinned social bases of feminism in the 1960s and 70s. Feminisms were articulated in diverse political communities. Another key point she makes in her work is that many activists interested in anti-sexist activism may have had hesitance or didn't want to use the word feminism to describe the work that they were doing if they felt that mainstream feminism was not open to them. Furthermore, she shows how feminists of color argued that their activism was written out of histories of second-wave feminist protest. They argued that racial, ethnic, and class biases that were part of a white feminist ideology and practice have shown up in subsequent scholarship about the, that ideology and practice. She describes a whitewashing of the history of the second wave. What were some of the concerns that second wave feminists organized around? What were the concerns within the women's movement? I'm not going to talk about concerns within the movement. These are some of the main points of organizing. Different groups were interested in some points more than others. I'll go into more details about this in the next lecture. Generally, feminists in the 1960s and 1970s organized around access to space, access to resources, ideas of social and political equality. Here, you can see the importance of that idea. The personal is political. I'm now going to quickly speak about some of the major categories of concern in organizing. You will notice many of these categories are topics of future lectures. Of course, after this lecture, we will focus on more present concerns with some historical context beginning with the 1960s. So what were some of the concerns? One is labor. Though I will speak of the public, private, inside, outside of the home binaries, these lines are actually blurred. Within labor comes the topic of housework, a big topic of discussion during this time. Think again of the 1963 feminine, feminine mystiques, the problem with no name, that comfortable female domesticity and the consumer and political culture that supported it had become a trap for middle-class women keeping them from authentic lives and from being authentic citizens, right? So why was that so fascinating to so many people that the book and the concept took off so much, right? Like, what was it speaking to? Other concerns were women working outside of the home and working within the home and the political choice of that language, concerns of various classes, paid versus unpaid housework, gender roles in housework, and the idea of the second shift, which, while that name was given by sociologist Arlie Hochschild in 1989 for this phenomenon, there's concern about working outside the home and then coming home and doing housework. Among these concerns 
was organizing around work outside the home and educational opportunities. Some women worked outside the home throughout the 20th century. Women were barred from certain jobs, issues of an unequal pay, a lack of daycares and childcare for mothers, sexual harassment in the workplace. Again, the term doesn't get coined till the 70s. Women entering universities that had been previously closed to them. Advertisements for jobs that specified if the job was only for men or women. The actual newspaper had job classification sections that were divided. Health and healthcare were other big issues. Feminists organized around wanting to have access to knowledge about women's health and female bodies. Here you can see the rise of organizations like the Boston Women's Health Collective who wrote Our Bodies Ourselves. There is a push for women doctors, birth control access, the right to abortion, and the importance of Roe v. Wade court case in 1973, um, and the court case that made abortion um, not illegal in Canada in 1988. Violence was a big topic of organizing around a big point. Violence against women, battering in the creation of women's shelters, sexual violence, sexual assault, rape, and marital rape. So in the U.S., this started to be criminalized in the 1970s, but it wasn't until 1993 that was illegal in all 50 states. This meant that a husband could rape his wife, but wasn't considered rape because they were married. Race and racism were important topics during this period, and the discussion centered around the way that sexism is racialized, concerns of black women and women of color, racism within the movement, Sexuality and sexual orientation also were points of organizing around lesbian rights for work to keep custody of their children, lesbian spaces, and lesbians facing discrimination within the movement, and being called the lavender menace by activists like Betty Friedan, who saw lesbians as tarnishing the image of the movement. Media was an important topic. Activists spoke about and worked on portrayals of women in the media. Pornography was also intensely debated. There was a large emphasis on women's voices being heard, published, televised, broadcasted, and the establishment of feminist presses. The family was another point of organizing around and spoke to changing marital roles, changing rights of wives, changing definitions of families, changing child care, changing child support, daycare, and schools. I very quickly listed some big points of organizing. You can see how these topics are continual points of organizing around today. Although, of course, they've changed a bit, they still remain very relevant. This feminist organizing and activism crossed with other social movements, such as the peace movements, anti-war, anti-Vietnam War activism, environmental movements, anti-nuclear movements, anti-colonial movements, civil rights, black power, brown power and Chicano liberation, red power, indigenous rights movements, youth movements, farm workers' rights movements, student organizing, labor organizing, the sexual revolution, lesbian and gay liberation, disability rights, and within the Quebec context, you have ties with separatist sovereigntist movements for Quebec independence and nationalism. There was collaboration between various movements as well as conflict. Think about your own life. You are likely interested in many different social justice issues. You might bring feminist activism into your animal rights activism or anti-racist work into your work for trans rights. Individuals would work in various movements, and movements shared ideas. This didn't mean that all movements were open to collaboration, and this didn't mean that there wasn't racism, sexism, ableism, heterosexism, and more within the various movements. There definitely was. During the 1970s is when we see the establishment of women's studies programs, 
Over the past 50 years, they've changed names, and some of them are called Women and Gender Studies programs, some are called Social Justice Studies programs. When I was an undergrad, my major at Wesleyan was in Feminist Gender and Sexuality Studies. Here at McGill a few years ago, the Women and Gender Studies and Sexual Diversity Studies undergraduate programs merged and became the Gender, Sexuality, Feminist, and Social Justice Studies program. In her book, When Women Ask Questions, Marilyn Boxer argues that in addition to providing new faces, alternative perspectives, and innovative approaches to scholarship as well as teaching, women's studies is a powerful agent for transformation in colleges and universities of all types because it incorporates important recent trends and current concerns about teaching, research, education, and contemporary life. Women's studies questions conventional knowledge, dissolves boundaries, and facilitates the quest to integrate one's intellectual, professional, and personal experiences. She's, she shows how women's studies reflects the emergence of a new kind of educational program within the academy, drawing on energy of social and political action and building on the experiences of non-traditional people entering the academy. Initially started as women's centers, holding women's crisis centers, health centers, centers for sexual assault and harassment, as well be, as being teaching and research programs. We can see the roots of emotional labor on top of academic labor today. There is a challenge with women's studies programs, institutes, and centers such as Miguel's Institute for Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies. Women's and gender studies programs, ethnic studies, and black studies programs are usually underfunded and under-resourced. They constantly have to negotiate the balance between education, research, and activism. Institutions will speak about caring about Black Lives Matter movements while defending Black Studies, African American Studies, and African Canadian Studies programs. They'll talk about caring about diversity and inclusion while defunding and de-resourcing feminist studies programs. Look where the money goes and see what is actually supported. This has been an issue since the 1970s and continues to be an issue today. So, as you can see, the 1960s and 1970s set a lot of the foundations for what feminist activism continues to focus on through the following decades. Even if, as Benia Roth brings up, we often hear about the white women's activism during this period, black women, Latina, Chicana, Asian, indigenous, and other women of color actively participated in feminist movements. Critiques of racism within anti-feminist feminist organizing are not new. We saw this during the 19th and early 20th centuries. We also can see this in the 1960s and 1970s. One really important text from the 1970s was the Combahee River Collective's A Black Feminist Statement from 1977. The Combahee River Collective was a black lesbian feminist organization active in the Boston area from 1974 to 1980. The collective was instrumental in speaking about how white feminists and the civil rights movement were not addressing their particular needs as black women and as black lesbians more specifically. The collective discussed the ways that the mainstream feminist movement was racist, while there are issues of sexism and homophobia in the civil rights movement. The collective was also politically active around issues of violence against women, in particular, in particular the murder of 12 black women and one white woman in Boston in 1979. The collective wrote, The most general statement of our politics at present time would be that we are actively committed to struggling against racial, sexual, heterosexual, and class oppression and see our particular task 
the development of integrated analysis and practice based upon the fact that the major systems of oppression are interlocking. The synthesis of these oppressions creates the condition of our lives. As black women, we see black feminism as the logical political movement to combat the manifold and simultaneous oppressions that all women of color face. The statement positioned the collective and the struggles of black women within history. They wrote about black women's continuous life and death struggle for survival and liberation since slavery. They discussed black women's extremely negative relationship to the American political system as a system of white male rule has always been determined by their membership in two oppressed racial and sexual castes. They position their work within a long history of, as they write, Black women activists, some known like Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, Frances E.W. Harper, Ida B. Wells Barnett, and Mary Church Terrell, and thousands upon thousands unknown who have had a shared awareness of how their sexual identity combined with their racial identity to make their whole life situation and the focus of their political struggles unique. In their statement, they also wrote, Black feminists and many more black women who do not define themselves as feminists have all experienced sexual oppression as a constant factor in our day-to-day existence, end quote. They emphasize, starting in another quote, our politics initially sprang from the shared belief that black women are inherently valuable, that our liberation is a necessity, not as an adjunct to someone else's may, because of our need as human persons for autonomy, end quote. You can see in the statement that they put forward the idea of radical solidarity, which is different than ideas of separatism. While some white lesbian feminists sought to create separatist spaces where they lived without men, the Comahee River Collective wrote that, start quote, Although we are feminists and lesbians, we feel solidarity with progressive black men and do not advocate the fractionalization that white women who are separatists demand. Our situation as black people necessitates that we have solidarity around the fact of race, which white women, of course, do not need to have with white men, unless it is their negative solidarity as racial oppressors. We struggle together with black men against racism, but we also struggle with black men about sexism. As we have already stated, we reject the stance of lesbian separatism because it, because it is not a viable political analysis or strategy for us. It leaves out far too much and far too many people, particularly black men, women, and children. We have a great deal of criticism and loathing for what men have been socialized to be in this society, what they support, how they act, and how they oppress, but we do not have the misguided notion that is their maleness per se, i.e. their biological maleness, that makes them what they are. As black women, we find any type of biological determinism a particularly dangerous and reactionary basis upon which to build a politic. We must also question whether lesbian separatism is an adequate and progressive political analysis and strategy, even for those who practice it, since it so completely denies any but the sexual sources of women's oppression, negating the facts of class and race, end quote. They also link their work back to ideas of Marxism, writing that we realize that the liberation of all oppressed peoples necessitates the destruction of the political economic systems of capitalism and imperialism, as well as patriarchy. We are socialists because we believe that work must be organized for the collective benefit of those who do the work and create the products, and not for the profit of the bosses. So, in this statement, we can see the ways that the collective links race, class, gender, and sexual orientation. 
We'll talk about that statement more next week's lecture as we talk about intersectionality and its role in theory. So while the second wave and feminist activism in the 1960s and 70s sets the stage for later feminist activism, it is not without issues, tensions, debates, and power disparities and oppressions. This leads us to the idea of third-wave feminism, another place of contested starting points, but usually is started as the the usual starting point is located at the late 1980s to early 1990s. Third-wave feminism. Rebecca Walker coined the term third-wave feminism in a 1992 essay. Rebecca Walker was the daughter of Alice Walker, the African-American author of The Color of Purple, Naomi Wolf, author of The Beauty Myth, how images of beauty are used against women also popularized the term. The third wave brings in new concerns and new theories. Intersectionality is key. You'll really be talking about third wave concepts in a lot more detail throughout the semester. Within the third wave, we see roles of changing technologies, changing viewpoints, and the integration of new theories. Queer theory, post-structuralism, deconstruction, and social constructivism become important theoretical bases of the third wave. While the third wave builds on many of the ideas and concerns of the second wave, the third wave has a greater focus on queer people and women of color. Third wave feminists incorporate ideas like queer theory and abolishing gender role expectations and stereotypes. This period in feminist activism tends to be a bit more sex positive, pushes against the idea of the late 1980s and 1990s as being post-feminist, which as scholar Angela McRobbie describes, is the idea that the goals of feminism have been reached and should be left behind in the 1970s. A woman can be empowered through consumerism. So that's post-feminism. So third-wave feminism is pushing against this idea of post-feminism. The third wave seeks to broaden the parameters of feminism and shows that feminism is still useful and necessary. When thinking of the third wave, I don't want us to think of an us versus them. Each generation builds on and challenges the work of earlier feminists. Each generation of activists has their own interests and needs. Activists continue to do activism during their lifetimes, and some change their ideas, and some don't. The world also changes, and so feminism adapts to that. There's a bit of a debate if we are presently are still in a kind of third wave feminism or if we're in the fourth wave. I'm not super concerned about that difference because I should be queer right now. There are issues with the wave theory. I've talked about them quite a bit. I've used those terms because they can be helpful framing of certain concerns during certain time periods. But again, I don't like how certain groups, primarily the groups with more privilege and powers, needs get prioritized within that framework. This has already been a very long lecture. I have one final point that I want to make, which is that progress is not linear. Ruth Rosen's book, When the World Split Open, How the Modern Women's Movement Changed America from 2006, has a wonderful timeline of feminist activism in it. In it, she writes backlashes in bold font. Backlash, the undeclared war against American women in 1990, is a book from 1991 by journalist Susan Faludi, in which she presents and argues that there was a media-driven backlash in the 1980s against feminist advances of the 1970s. Backlashes are counter-movements. I bring this up because in Rosen's book, in her timeline feminist activism and in the United States, you can see a gain made by feminist activists and soon after, a bolded backlash. Progress is not linear. There are pushes and pulls, back and forth. 
gains made in the 1960s and 1970s, such as access to birth control or abortion, continue to be contested. Martin Luther King Jr. is quoted as saying, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. In this quote, he builds on 19th century Unitarian minister Theodore Parker's words. But I want us to remember that progress has to be fought for continually, and there are a variety of approaches, even within feminist movements, of how to work towards social justice. In the next lecture, you'll look at some of those various approaches. The themes raised in today's lecture will recur throughout the course. The next lecture is significantly shorter, and will focus on the many different feminisms and discussing the concept of intersectionality. Have a great day. All the videos, songs, images, and graphics used in the podcast and transcript belong to their respective owners, and I do not claim any right over them. The opening bell sounds school bell dot wave from 13F Panska, Stranska, Michaela, and the closing bell is from Inspector J's bell calendar aid dot wave of freesound.org. Dealing is an exception in the Canadian Copyright Act that outlines the permitted unauthorized use of copyrighted materials for specific mandated purposes in Canada. These purposes include research, privacy, education, parody, satire, criticism, review, or news reporting. For research and privacy, education, parodies, and satire, no special requirements are required. For criticism, review, and news reporting, the source and author must be named to consult fair dealing. This is an advertisement-free podcast used for educational purposes.